So we're in the book of James in chapter 5. We're going to wind up the book of James. Um, James, if you're unfamiliar with the book of James, James was Jesus' half-brother. Um, there's no absolute statement of that in the scriptures, but the indication from the gospels is he's one of Jesus's half brothers, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph, the physical son of Mary and Joseph. And we're going to be in the month of August, we're going to be looking at G- one of Jesus's other half brothers, Jude, um, in, uh, we're going to look at his book, his epistle, uh, for the month of August. Um, now James, if you remember all the way back at the beginning, James is actually the English version of the Hebrew word Yaakov or Jacob. Um, how we turned a K into an M. It's English. Don't expect consistency. Um, but, uh, but James, uh, James is a leader of the early church. This is probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest epistle that's been written to the church. And he is writing primarily to Jewish believers who have been scattered by the persecutions we read about in the first part of the book of Acts. So this is a church under pressure, but not under the extreme pressure they would face in the third century when when emperors like Diocletian um, would persecute them uh, rabidly. But it is still a an early church. People are still trying to figure out what it means to be the church. And they won't really get an idea of what it means to be the church separate from Judaism for a few decades yet. Um, Paul will do a lot uh, to to kind of explain the theology and how everything works. But right now, they're just essentially they're basically just a Jewish sect that believes that Jesus is the Messiah and was raised from the dead and is the savior of the world. But these are still mostly um, Jewish people. There are some Gentiles among them. Um, and they've been dealing with the issue of not only persecution from the outside, but the issues of internal function. How do we as the church function? How do we deal with um, the rich, uh, the powerful? Last week we talked about the Sadducees and how when they uh, came to, there were a group in the book of Acts who came to be believers in Jesus, and yet there was still a power struggle. They were still the rich, the powerful, and that just doesn't disappear overnight. And so he deals with the topic of how uh, how should we deal with uh, that in the church. And we talked about the difference um, between God blessing us and, and us using our wealth and power to influence others. This last section of James's uh, epistle, um, he's gonna he's gonna wrap everything up. And he's going to wrap everything up with a bizarre conclusion, I think. As I was reading this, this just struck me as, what a weird way to go. After all that he's talked about in his epistle. In James chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, be patient. That's what he says. After all this conversation, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. In other words... Buckle up, bud. It's going to be a while. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. If you don't know what happens in the winter and the spring in, in the Middle East, is you have, you have what we would consider winter is the early rains. They're the heavy rains. And then you plant your early grain, your early produce. And then there's a second set of rains in the early spring. Um, and then you plant like that really, really long-term stuff that 
because it won't rain again. Most people don't realize that Jerusalem, Israel, gets as much rain as London, England. It just gets it in two months. So so you, you get a lot of rain, but you, you get it real tight, so they have to plan out. So he says, you've got to be patient. Verse 9, he says it again, or verse 8, you also be patient. So it's the second time he said it. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from those wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's so much emphasis. Uh, if you, you read books on James, if you take Bible studies in James, there will be a tremendous amount of emphasis on the second part of this passage we just read. That whole bit about praying fervently and all that, that will get obsessed. People will read that and read that and teach that and talk about it and Elijah and pray for rain and all this stuff. And I would actually argue that that little bit that he's, that he makes at the end there is not the core of what he's saying. That's the result of the work of being patient. That this whole idea of Elijah praying, and when we read the, 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 the book of First Kings, and we read the story of Elijah, and we talked about Elijah, we did a series about two years ago called Troublesome Prophets, um, where we talked a lot about Elijah. But one of the things about Elijah is he literally just appears out of nowhere. Um, and he, his name is actually the guy from nowhere. He's nobody from nowhere. That's his, his title. And he, and he shows up and he tells the king it's not going to rain and it doesn't rain. And we read that and we go, wow, you know, that was instantaneous. Look at how James describes uh, Elijah though. James says it wasn't just that Elijah showed up one day and he said this, this thing and it was true. He says that Elijah prayed fervently before he went. He stood against the power of the, the, the Omrid king against Ahab after he devoted his heart and his mind to prayer. But what does it mean to pray? What's the foundation of prayer to James? And that's where we go back to verse 7, where he talks about being patient. And then he describes what it means to be patient. Prayer is not the result of me asking God for something and Him instantaneously doing it. Prayer is the work of staying true to God's will 
as I ask him to do something. So here, look at what James has to say is the foundation of prayer. The foundation of a prayer of a person who's going to stand against world powers. The foundation of a prayer of those who are suffering. The foundation of the prayer of those who are cheerful. The foundation of the prayer of those who are sick. Here's the foundation. You want to know how to pray? Here's where we start. Verse 8. Be patient, he says. And then he says this. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. The first command that he gives within patience. He says, be patient. And then he gives a set of commands within patience. The first one is establish your hearts. The Greek word literally means put a stake in the ground and stay there. Anchor yourself and stand in a place. Establish yourself. Uh, now, in the ancient world, and, and we, we, uh, we see this somewhat in, in, um, in Greco-Roman wrestling and, and those kind of things, you see somebody who sets a foundation and just stays at that foundation. And one of the, one of the um, lost skills that, that existed in the Greco-Roman world, uh, it must have been mind-boggling to watch uh, Roman and Greek soldiers training for combat. Because if you're familiar with the way that they fought, they were they were fighting with spears and shields. Okay, so today guy goes in the army, he gets his Kevlar vest and his camouflage and his automatic rifle, and and they, you know we watch all these videos of these guys fighting from a distance, working door to door, and that's a completely different kind of combat than they had. The combat that they used was almost entirely lower leg strength. So I just imagine you show up at a Roman thing and there's just a bunch of guys with shields over their heads doing squats. All right. And the reason that they're doing this is because if you know anything about their combat, one of the things that you did was you put your shield. The Romans, the Greeks used smaller shields, but the Romans used a shield that was almost as tall as you. And it weighed about 60 pounds. So there was also a lot of curling going on. And it was strapped to your arm, and it was always your left arm. There were no right-handed Roman soldiers, or left-handed Roman soldiers. And then you had a, a kind of pointy spear that you wanted to throw at people, and then you had a sword, the gladius, um, which is a double-edged sword, and you put your shields together, and they were curved, and then the guy behind you put his shield up above your head, and the guy behind him put his shield, uh, what's called the tortoise. And then you just basically pushed your way into the bad guys. Because, you know, whoever you're fighting is the bad guys. So that's the rule. All right. That's how the movies work. Um, so uh, it's like if you show up, how will we know who we're supposed to fight? Oh, great General Maximus. See all those guys that aren't Romans? Fight them. They're the bad guys. All right. And, you know, and the Romans would put these shields together and they would literally you picked your shield up. You pushed off of your back foot. You put your shield down. You stabbed. So you imagine what it takes to do that all day long. Now, ancient battles usually only last about an hour, an hour and a half. They're, they're not like, you know, you watch the movies in these Roman battles. For some reason, you ever notice that in any time the Romans are fighting in a movie, they have flaming arrows? You ever notice that? Do you realize how completely impractical a flaming arrow is? 
was like, ah, I've got this volatile thing that's going to throw off the balance of my bow. I'll just shoot it up in the air. What could possibly happen? All right, the vast majority of the combat was you got close enough to people, closer than I am to the front row of the church, I mean, inside COVID space, and you just pushed at them, and you poked them until you stopped pushing. All right, that was the way that their warfare worked. Well, the idea of establish yourself is you put your foot down, something that we don't do, and you don't back up from that spot. So as, as a mob would come crashing at the Roman uh, legion, they would form the tortoise, they would make their formation, they would hold their, their shield, and the idea was, you don't move. You don't go backwards. You stay where you are, or you move forward. There is no backwards. Uh, one Civil War general once was accused of retreating, and I think it was Sherman. I could be wrong. might have been Sheridan, but he said, I didn't retreat. I advanced in the opposite direction. But but um, but either way, when we come up to the line, we we form a position we're not supposed to back up. So we establish ourselves, and and patience is possible when you set an anchor, when you put a put your foot on the ground, you decide I'm not going to move from this space except forward. You get your bearings, and most importantly, you have a reason to stand where you're standing. You ever met somebody that has a conviction about something that for some reason you cannot figure out why they believe what they believe? But man, do they believe it. I met somebody online who believed that Adam and Eve spoke English in the Garden of Eden. Now, the world of the Internet has really allowed us to see that human beings have been kind of stupid all along. Not everybody, but that exists out there. There are people that believe some really, really bizarre stuff. And somehow the Internet has given them a a platform to act like you're supposed to take their views seriously. This guy believed that Adam and Eve spoke English. And I sat down like, well, dude, I have studied the English language for for years. I mean, I can I can read Beowulf in the old Anglo-Saxon. I've read Chaucer in Middle English. I mean, English changes. I grew up reading the King James Bible. I know early modern English better than I know the language I speak now. And he and he said, yeah, well, you know, God confused the languages, but English is the language of heaven. And no matter how much you argue with somebody like that, they have this position. They're just, they're dug in. But why? Why is English the language? I mean, if, let's be honest. If God were going to pick a language to speak in heaven, would it be our mongrel language? I mean, our language is essentially what happens when a bunch of Germans mug a, a French guy. I mean, nothing about our language makes any sense at all. You know, it's like we we have, all right, you're going to learn the to be verbs. Okay, I'm ready. Let's learn the to be verbs. Are we ready? All right. I am. You are. They are. Wait, wait, wait. Hold up. So uh, we am? No, 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 no. We are. I'm like, this makes no sense. And why is this connected to the word be? All right. This is, oh, wait until you get, get into the various forms where then we get been. I'm like, okay, all right, so then being, no, 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 English doesn't make any sense, not the language of heaven, it's just, this the way it works, Um, you know, I mean, we joke around that Japanese is proof that aliens walk the earth, but English is proof that left to our, our own devices, we will make a language as complicated as possible. But, but you meet these people who they have this conviction. They don't know why they have a conviction. We as believers, we do not have the freedom to have random convictions. 
we establish ourselves on the foundation of Scripture. And we establish ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we, when we receive from God what the Scriptures have to say, and we plant our feet, there should be no capacity for us to be pushed off of that point. And the reality is that so much of Christianity, so much of the church over history has been willing to give ground to the, to our culture, to pressure, to the, the power of the rich, to all these things that James has been dealing in the book, uh, in his epistle. We've given ground so much that we don't know where we stand. Uh, how many of you ever done like woods, navigating in the woods with a compass and beads? Do you, how many of you remember, have any of you ever done this? Where you navigate, you, you, you mark off your paces using beads? Has any, anybody ever done this? Alright, what? Yeah, it's, it's a military thing, right? It was before we had GPS and all the soldiers go, oh! You know. um, you, you, you would, you would have a map and you had your lensatic compass and you would, you would get your bearing and you would look forward and you would see something and you would start walking and you would count, you move a bead every ten steps. All right, and that's how you make sure you know how far you walked in a particular dickhead. It's like dead reckoning on a plane. All right, it's 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 some, because if you've ever been in the woods, you guys that hike, right? You know, you know the woods all looks alike, right? Like once you get in the woods, you're like, no, no, there's a path. It'll be easy. I mean, you ever done a long hike and then turn around and headed back? You're like, I got to be at the end. I saw that tree on the way in. And then you see a tree that looks just like that tree, and another tree that looks just like that tree, and you're like, man, this is awful, my feet hurt, I've got to be close, and then you look, because it's modern technology, you have a GPS, and you've walked 300 feet, and you have nine and a half miles to go, all right? Um, the woods are like that, they, they just, so, so you ever get in a situation where you've lost your bearings, you don't know where to plant your foot to establish yourself. So we as the church, the first thing we have to, we have in order to be patient, in order to pray, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to know the scriptures. We've got to be sensitive to the spirit of God. And then we've got to lay down, we've got to put a stick in the ground, we've got to put our foot down and say, this is where we stand and we're not backing up from here. You say, what's that called? It's called faith. Faith is not just believing something it's believing something and making it the foundation of who you are and what you do. He says, patience starts with establishing yourself, setting an anchor. And then in verse 9, he says, do not grumble against one another. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read that verse, I get convicted because I grumble all the time. My wife will tell you that this is my current state of being is grumbling about things. But the, the word that's actually used here is actually an involuntary reaction against others. That, that you develop such a grudge against someone that no matter what they do or what they say, it's got to be wrong. You all know those kind of people, right? The sky is blue. Cyan. The ocean is blue. Green. You know, it's, it's usually like between the ages of 13 and 16. Um, but you get these people, it doesn't matter what you say, they're going to go the opposite. They're so contrary, and I don't know anybody like that. Um, but it is this involuntary, that it's so ingrained in us, this involuntary frustration that no matter what happens, we are opposed to it. And not only that, but it is the sense of allowing it to control you. 
So when people establish themselves in a false belief and they start saying they're going to pray and all that stuff, but then everything they're doing is about everybody else. It's all everybody else is wrong, but I'm right. They're grumbling about everybody. They're the only person that stumbled on the truth. You guys have all met this. I've never, you know, I've never read this anywhere, but I know it to be absolutely true because I am as smart, the smartest person in the world. Um, this involuntary frustration, what it's going to do is it's going to cause you to lose focus. You're so worried about where everybody else is going that you're losing track of what's really important. And those people, again, to go back to our Roman legion, just imagine a Roman legion, and let's just have three Roman legionnaires. Let's call the first one Maximus. The second one we'll call him Gaius. And the third one we'll call Bill. He's a Celt. Um, so... So the three of them line up and they're in order and they're, they're established themselves and Maximus says, oh, we will conquer. You know, that's how Romans talk. That's their accent. They're French. Um, so during, <laughs> boy, this, this illustration is going to come in with some duct tape on it. So, so we're, so the, Maximus is here and he's lined up and Gaius is here and he's lined up and Bill is standing there going, you know, I couldn't help but notice that your tunic was a little too short. If you're going to be fighting Celts and stuff, you've got to worry about your dress code. And Maximus is over here going, okay. Grumbling is, it gets in the way of what we're trying to accomplish. When, when, we, when we are losing focus, because all we're worried about is, is how, what, what's going on inside the tortoise, all right? That sounded weird out of context, but everything that's going on in this formation, rather than worrying about where you're going and the, and the purpose that you're going to. I remember one time my parents, we were going our way to a, a, a preaching thing, and my mother had the directions. This is, you know, I was born in the Stone Ages before there was, you know, navigation software in your computer. Navigation in your computer was a big, huge atlas and my mom. And, um, and she had the directions, and she was telling him, Kirk, Kirk. Kirk, you gotta turn left here. It's, it's down that way. Now my dad, my dad, and you guys have met, my dad has an innate sense that he already knows where he's going. This is a man, by the way, who set up an Easter sunrise service facing west. And I had to bring a compass out to prove it to him at 15 years old that he was pointed the wrong direction. I'm like, dad, the sun rises over there. Now in his defense, this was in Massachusetts, and so things are upside down there. But he was pointed the wrong direction. And, and, and so my mom and dad are, are arguing. I know that's a surprise. That never happens in your home, I'm sure. Um, we're arguing, they're arguing over which way we're supposed to go. They're late. My dad's like, no, I know directions. It's sun and it's 2.30 a.m. And so it's, and we're going right. And he turns right and he drives. We're driving all over the out of nowhere, wherever we were. We were in rural Pennsylvania somewhere. I don't know where we were. Where the three of us are lined up in the back seat, punching each other. We're, we're, we're doing all this. He comes around, comes around. My mom is telling him he grabs the directions from her. He crumples it up and he throws it out the window. He says, I don't need these. I know where I'm going. He drives around a little bit more and we come to the intersection and there's a piece of paper. He turns left and winds up at the place we were supposed to go. When all we're doing, we're so focused on everything that's going on internally rather than being established 
and just deciding we're going to move forward. They lose focus. They get confrontational. But then he, he goes on a little bit, right? He talks about Job, right? He talks about suffering. And we're like, all right, do not grumble. Think about how disparate verses 9 and 10 are. Do not grumble against one another. And verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. Is this James giving possibly marriage advice? You know, don't grumble against one another. Here's an example of suffering. You know, what, what is he going with this? This is a joke, by the way, guys. Don't tell that one again. Um, as an example of suffering and patience, he says, take this. He says, behold, we're, consider those who are blessed who remain steadfast. He's like, look, he's like, you guys are, there's, there's grumbling, there's issues and divisions, and yet here are, there's, 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 uh, you know, Gaius, Maximus and Bill are fighting, but Gaius is holding his position. Blessed are those who remain steadfast. Who aren't grumbling, who have established themselves. And then he says in verse 12, he uses Job as an illustration. That's a whole other sermon. But verse 12, he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The third component of patience, first, establish yourselves. The second one, do not grumble. But the third one is, have some integrity. My dad used to tell me integrity is that when you are the same person, when people can see you and in the dark. And he said this this idea that you have not just not just convenience, you know, I'm standing here and fighting with you guys and I'm strong, but rather you're standing there and fighting and established and not grumbling because you've got some conviction and you've got some integrity and you're you're what you're you say yes to will be yes. And what you say no to will be no. And the foundation of that, that integrity, again, is the intensity of our relationship with our God. Well, last night we were at a, a wedding, um, you know, and I should wear a shirt, I should wear a pin when I go out in public that says, this conversation may end up in a sermon. <laughs> but we were, we were at a wedding and, and, you know, we're talking about identity. You know, a group of us were all talking and we're talking about identity. And the, and this guy I had just met, his name was Mike and he had an awesome beard. It was cool. It was like sitting with a member of ZZ Top. And um, he was, for you young people, that's a Texas blues band with two guys with really long beards and a drummer who's clean shaven, whose last name is Beard. Anyway, um, so we just threw that out for you for free. Uh, boy, let's coffee. All right. So we're at this man, we're talking about this and we're talking about identity and Mike is talking about, hey, he's talking about how he grew up without a father. His mother was a drug addict. There were all these issues. He says, but you know what? He says, when I found out who I was in Christ, it didn't, none of that mattered. I was going to be a husband and a father and a, and a man of God. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, woo, you know, like, because you never hear guys, like, I mean, the preachers say it all the time, but actually hearing somebody who's not a pastor saying that, he's like, man, I just choose to be who God chose me to be. And I'm like, sweet, dude, you know, awesome. Uh, it, it was like, it was like, oh, this is so cool. And then, of course, everybody on the table, we started talking about it. It was really great. It was one of the best wedding table conversations I've ever had. Um, and uh, usually they consist of, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then everybody just zips their lip and doesn't. <laughs> probably because they know whatever they say will wind up in a sermon later. <laughs> in 
integrity, conviction. So we can establish ourselves all we want. We can even close our mouths and not grumble and not express our, our issues. But, but having integrity, having, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. How often do we get in a situation where it would be so much easier to blame somebody else? And isn't the issue of identity in our culture all about blaming somebody else for who I am? I, I watched a commercial the other day. I don't watch like live TV. I watch only like streaming services that I pay for for some reason. And like Peacock only has like three commercials. So you're watching a show, it's the NBC thing, you're watching a show, you get the same three commercials over and over, one a drug commercial, a State Farm commercial, and a Verizon commercial, and that, that's it, that's all you get all day long. And, and one of the, the commercials is like, it, it, starts with, it starts with the statement, the body that you were randomly assigned at birth. That, that's the opening line for this, like, this drug commercial, and, and I, I was like, I don't know how to tell you this. I wasn't randomly assigned this body. God went, you know what would be funny? I'm going to build a human being who looks just like a bobblehead. I'm going to give him no legs, six foot tall from the hip, the waist to the shoulders, and the biggest brained head you have ever seen. Like literally, I want him to sprain his neck when he says yes. That was not a randomly assigned head. He's like, and you know what would be really good? Uh, first, I'll make him nearsighted. And then when he gets into his 40s, I'll take away his near vision. Yeah, that would be great. God didn't randomly assign you your identity. He chose to make you who you are. And our, our identification, our conviction about ourselves, our identity begins when we choose to accept what God chose for us. And you know what? When we, we, are, we say our yes is yes and our no is no and being willing to do things. Going back to this wedding, you guys, many of you have heard me say stuff like this. We're in the wedding. You know how well I do in loud talky-talky conversation moments where there's like a hundred people having separate congregation. I really, really enjoy those situations, sarcastically, he said. Um, I'm sitting there, and I had to get up and leave, and my wife is so well-practiced in this that while I was gone, she said to the people, it's like, he just can't handle these kind of situations. It's noisy, and it's chaotic, and, and he needs to, you know, he has to kind of recenter. I come back and we're having a conversation. If you ever see me in a, in like a large assembly of people, I sit with my head down and my ear turned to the conversation that I'm trying to listen to so that hopefully I can focus on it and tune out everything else that's going on. And I said to them at one point, I went, I went, I just need to apologize. I'm not being rude. I'm trying to pay attention because, you know, I'm a very smiley person. Somebody once time said, you know, it takes three times as many muscles to frown as it does to smile. And I went, I'm not doing either. My face is completely neutral. You know, um, the, the, I'm just not doing any exercise. The, the, but the, the, we're having this conversation. You know how hard it is for people to admit the reality of who they are to other people? How much of our world is obsessed with trying to convince people that you're not the person that you really are? I'll tell them eventually that I'm like this, but I want them to like me first. You know, our, our society is fake. 
It's built on a on a now. I'm not a huge. I'm not a gigantic fan, fan of our our current president for a lot of reasons. I'm not gonna get. That. But you know what I do love about Joe Biden? He's just Joe. I mean, the dude. He just. He's like. If, if he's like. If he thinks something's funny that's not funny, he laughs. He's like, you know, it's just, he, and I'm like, oh, this is a cool, this is like a cool guy. Have you ever seen the commercial when Obama retired and Joe's trying to convince Obama to wear aviators? It's, it's great commercial. Anyway, um, the, and he winds up, he winds up with the former Republican Speaker of House watching a movie. It's, it's a great commercial. Look it up on YouTube. But be honest about who you are. Be realistic about what your expectations are. And that's the foundation of our ability to pray. We establish ourselves on Christ, on the scriptures, on the spirit. We take our focus off. Everybody else isn't doing it the way that I'm doing it, grumbling and complaining. And then we become men and women of conviction who know what we believe, know who we are. Our yes is yes and our no is no. Let the chips fall where they may. And then we can begin to pray and have power. Do you think that Elijah woke up on the morning that he opposed Ahab and he went, well, it's time to be a prophet. Now, Elijah is the subject of my doctoral dissertation, so I could get into a lot of, about him. But the, the reality is Elijah devoted his life to preparing for that moment. And when the time came and Elijah had to oppose one of the rising economic and political powers of, the, of his region... He did it without trembling. Now, don't get me wrong. When Jezebel goes, I am going to kill you. Elijah goes, I'm going to run faster. And God has to renew him, has to encharge him. And then he goes back and he, he does his job and he actually loses his anointing and has to pass it on to Elisha, his successor, and then continue to work knowing that his successor is lined up. But in that moment, when we start to pray, you say, well, how do you pray for sickness? How do you pray for healing from a sickness? You've got to establish yourself in what the scriptures have to say. You've got to stop looking around for excuses. You've got to be honest and true when you pray. You say, how do I pray for my wayward kids? You've got to establish yourself in the scriptures. I can't tell you how many times... That people have prayed for good things for the wrong reasons. I want my kids to behave and be good because it looks bad for me that they're disruptive and disobedient. That's the wrong reason to pray. You're just kind of bouncing around in the structure. I want my church to succeed so that I can have a... a what was what was that shirt, Ryan? How much was that sweatshirt? What was, what was the name of it? Was... Yeah, it looked like, a, I mean, honestly, this dude was wearing a $1,000 designer sweatshirt, this preacher, and it looked like the sweatshirt I wear when I'm cleaning air ducts. Like, like it's ripped and it's distressed. I'm like, you know what we called distressed when I was a kid? All right, it was, you're going to wear it for six more months even though you put a hole in it. I mean, this idea, it's like, oh, and it was so funny reading the description. It was like strategically distressed was the description. I'm like, I was like, that means somebody in like the factories was like, 
Yeah, a thousand dollars. I want to be. I want to be. Uh, I want our church to succeed so that I can have a big house and a, and a Mercedes Benz and and comfortable shoes and and five hundred dollars shirts. I want our church to succeed so that everybody can look and say, "Wow, that's a tremendous church." We're praying for the wrong things. I want my kids to behave so people don't pick on me, so people don't look at me weird. You know, we're looking at the wrong things. It's so crazy now, and I'm going to, I'll just end with this. It's so crazy now, I'm going to, she's gone, right? Ariel's down in the bathroom, cool. As she gets ready for, for college, one of the things that I'm praying for, for our daughter, is that God will bring into her life a man, not a boy, right? Boys are dumb. Men work for a living, all right? God will bring into her life a man, hopefully not a southerner, but we'll take him. As she's in college, as she's in college, that God will bring into her life the man that he has prepared for her and she has been prepared for. And that prayer didn't start when she turned 16 or 17. That prayer started as soon as she was born. We started to pray that God would would, first of all, that she would not be the worst combination of the two of us. We we bailed on that one. That one didn't work out. Um but that God would, would have a man at the right time who would be a husband to her, who would not, a man who would, would encourage her and, and activate her, her creativity and her abilities and, and her intellect and, and would challenge her and would, would not, not somebody who would just, you know, oh, I just want somebody to love my, my daughter. I want somebody who's going to be a partner to her. I want somebody who's going to encourage her in the scripture. I want somebody who's going to push her out of her comfort zone. And, and, and praying for that, you have to start. With what does the Bible say, establish yourself, not look around. It's like, well, as long as her boyfriend's better than, you know, fill in the blank, Bill. We just pick on that poor Roman Celtic guy. We start, we establish ourselves, right? We don't look around, we don't get distracted, and then we drive with integrity. It does, and this is this, this prayer about my daughter. It doesn't do me any good. To pray for a man of integrity, for a man, uh, a man who will work hard, a man who will encourage her. If I, as a Christian husband and father, am not striving to be the kind of man I want her to marry. That's the integrity that's required of us when we pray. Dear God, do this thing, but I'm not going to change. I'll smack you upside the head. You want God to do something, you better be in alignment with him. Better be established. You better be ready not to retreat no matter what the pressure is. Better not be looking around at what everybody else is doing, but looking at the goal that He has given us, striving and working with conviction and integrity. I will take a, a man who is honest over his failures, the man who lies about his successes. That's what God has called us to be. Now, I got to just leave you with this. Remember that James initially rejected his brother as the Messiah. But when he was confronted with the reality of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, James became one of the leaders of the church and saw them through the early years. That's extraordinary. A man who established himself once he corrected himself and stayed true to who he was.
Was James perfect? We could talk about how he's not perfect. But he was established, not grumbling, and his yes was yes, and his no was no. You want to know how to pray? Start there. Well, I thought you were going to give us instructions. There ain't no instructions. Foundational. This is, this is foundational to our prayers. And not swerving no matter how much we get disappointed in it. Now that she's back, don't tell Ariel what I said. We, we did pray that if she dated somebody in high school that it would be a good Christian guy. But my advice to my daughter when she went into high school about guys, Ariel, what was it? What did I say about guys? Don't date a... <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to fall in love with a boy. You want to fall in love with a man. She's, she's so like, I don't remember... I feel like I'm going to fail this test. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but but we we have to pray. We we pray believing no matter how long it takes, no matter how long it takes, no matter where we're going, no matter how we're struggling. That's the beginning of our prayer. Before you start with dear Jesus or Heavenly Father or any of those things, establish. Do not grumble. Be a, be a man or woman of integrity. Know what you believe. Don't worry about everything else that's going around. Don't let it pressure you. And be conviction, integrity. Be, be a, a man or woman of integrity when you pray. You're praying for what you're praying for because God has called you to what you're doing. Your identity is in Him. Let's have a word of prayer. Spirit of God, sometimes we grieve you. You never scream at us. You, you move us and you shake us and you push us and you open our eyes and, and sometimes we're not willing to let you move us. And we repent of our unwillingness to hear your voice. And Jesus, sometimes we paint you in the colors we want you to be in. We, we create an imaginary version of you that placates our needs rather than being honest about who you are. And the absolutely terrifying reality that the God of all the universe would live a life among us to save us. And all that that means for us. And Father, sometimes we treat you like you are just a genie far away that we ask for things. But you are our Father. You are our Maker, our Creator, our Lord, our Judge. And so as we lift our prayers up to you, Lord, help us to establish ourselves on your Word and in your Spirit. To put our focus and our heart on what you've called us to do, the identity we have in you, and to be yours through and through. It's tough to live in a world that is so opposed to your word, so opposed to your people, so opposed to our identity in you. But Lord, we ask that you 
do what only you can do in us so we 